episode 142, Disco Dorothy. I'm assistant curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a September 21st, 2011 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on our website, kshs.org. For many, The Wizard of Oz was a timeless story about a girl from Kansas. For others, the story was badly in need of an update. Join collection specialist Donna Ray Pearson and me as we examine album covers from The Wiz, a 1970s adaptation of L. Frank Baum's classic tale. Creators wanted The Wiz to be more inclusive and geared towards the African-American perspective. Written in the age of disco, did The Wiz prove to be too funky for mainstream America? Then, we go behind the scenes with the First Lady of Kansas, Mary Brownback, as she gears up to host the Kansas Book Festival. Held on the grounds of the Historical Society, the festival celebrates Kansas authors and literature. From Eisenhower to Geek Chic, find out what these authors love about Kansas. Finally, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, we connect White, a small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Benedict Arnold, a revolutionary war hero that switched sides and fought for the British. Like Arnold, did White's name once become synonymous with a dastardly deed? For example, was eating the last powdered donut known as pulling a White? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, Disco Dorothy. Good afternoon, Donna Ray. Good afternoon, Marl. Today we are discussing a pair of album covers that feature The Wiz, a musical adaptation of the story The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Uh, and it was re, re-imaged from an Amer- African-American cultural perspective uh, sometime in the 60s or 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're actually talking about kind of two iterations of it. Yes, actually, you we know, are. So there's the first Wonderful Wizard of Oz, and then at some point someone creates a stage version. Right, The and Wiz. And then someone creates a film version. The Wiz, yes. yes. <laughs> to make uh, it even more confusing, right. they're both the same names. Um so we'll start out first. I'll describe what the album covers look like because that's what we're talking about is musicals. So there's and there's a album associated with the versions. Um, and the first album is from The Wiz, and it is from the earlier Broadway production. And it's white, and it depicts kind of a silhouetted uh, female figure uh, with sort of psychedelic hair. Right. It's a very 60s kind of look to it. Kind of mod. Right, yeah, yes. Kind of mod. And, okay, so now mm-hmm. you describe what the next one looks well, like. Well, the second album cover is the background is kind of a twilight sky with sparkling stars and what appears to be a New York skyline uh-huh. on the horizon. Not the get, Emerald City? Not the okay. Emerald City, New York. Okay. And the foreground, of course, at the bottom has capital letters, bold and gold, the way. 
is. And then the middle ground, there are four figures. There's the Scarecrow, Dorothy, the Lion, and Tin Man. Uh Easily recognizable until you look a little closer. You realize it's Michael Jackson, (laughs) Diana Ross, Ted Ross, and a guy named Nipsey Russell. Those are all black black actors. I can tell you I recognize two of those names. Okay. Uh, So we're talking about The Wiz, uh, and it was the brainchild of producer and New York DJ Kenneth Harper. Who was Harper, and what was he trying to do with the concept of The Wiz? Well, really, he was just a guy with a good idea at the time. I mean, he had no experience that I could find prior to producing a Broadway play. And he conceived of the idea at a time when blacks were coming more culturally aware and were expecting to experience things that reflected their experience Mm -hmm. in the late 60s, early 70s. So there was kind of that raised expectation. Um, and plus, there were more blacks that had the willing, willingness and ability to pay to get this experience. So at first, Ted went to Kenneth. Excuse me, Kenneth went to um, the networks, the television television networks, and they said, "No way! I mean, you're going up against an icon, and you want to make it a all black." Feature? So he was pitching the idea of of, of, of an African American version of the Wizard of Oz for TV, for made, TV, made for TV, and they said too risque. Yeah, no, this that won't work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so then he decided he might have a little bit more creative freedom, and he took it to Broadway. The Wiz uh, is a variant of L. Frank Baum's book about the little about a little girl from Kansas, and Baum wrote his book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, in like 1901, as I, th- I think when it was published. Did Harper did he did he use use basically the same narrative? I mean, how different is the story? Well, actually, Harper kept that narrative. He kept that narrative and added elements of black culture, black life. A little made, made them Charlie Smalls, which was considered a musical prodigy at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, he jazzed up the music, um, made it a little bit more soulful, and made and the two writers ended up making it more. A comedy. You can remember the Wizard of Oz. You know, it had its really dark moments. Right, some very dark moments. It's kind of scary, Mm -hmm. actually. Um, But uh, the Wiz was a little bit more lighthearted, but it still came across with the same themes Mm -hmm. that Bomb intended. You know, someone going out, seeking adventure, discovering themselves. You know, making friends and how to get back home, finding Mm -hmm. themselves within. The Wiz, the movie. Right, the later movie version. The later movie movie version in 1978 did a total reinterpretation of that. Dorothy became a little bit older, and she was in New York, which took us all out of the Kansas cornfields in the, you know, the young, um, naive person. Right, because Diana Ross is looking about in her 30s, maybe late 30s. Yeah, at the time, which um, made it more of a stretch for me at that Mm -hmm, time. mm -hmm. But um, with the stage play versus the the movie are two totally different scripts, different songs. Uh So the stage play was still about a little a little girl from Kansas. The Wiz opened on Broadway in 1975. How was it received? We know the movie didn't do well, but yes. how was the stage? How did the stage performance do? Well, the stage performance actually didn't do well in the beginning. It, you know, it had a little few bumps in the road, and in fact, um, within a couple of weeks, they were considering closing it. But they did some tweaking, moved it to a different venue, then moved it back to an to its original venue. 
and um, it ended up doing fantastically. Um, the, sh- this, the show slowly gained popularity, and by the time all was said and done, it won Tony Awards for the Best Musical, Best really? Direction, Best Book of Musical, Best Featured Actress, Best Featured Actor, Best Score, and Best Choreography. There is the original book, and then there's the 19... 19- 1939, the film, the most popular of all, is the Judy Garland um, film about the wonderful Wizard of Oz in Technicolor, pioneering for its time. Mm -hmm. So in the 1970s, you have this readaptation is competing against that. But, you know, it's trying to reach a new audience. Right. So, and it's proving quite successful. Kind of indicating the endearing qualities of the story itself. Right. So I think if, you know, maybe the Wiz, the film version, it kind of stuck closer to the storyline, they might have a different story to tell us in the end. In 1978, the film version of the Wiz was created. uh, And as you mentioned, there is some pretty uh, interesting people in the cast. Can you go into a little bit, tell me a little bit more specifically, like how did that 1978 version, how did it differ from the Broadway production? Ken Harper actually was only on paper. He did not really have any say in the production of the film version. Mm-hmm. He sold the rights to, I believe it was Motown, and um, they took it from there basically. So instead of the award winning actress Dorothy, <laughs> Um, be playing the role. Um, they got Diana Ross to do it again. Mm-hmm. Who would have been a recognizable name at the time? A recognizable name, but not necessarily the best actress in the world. Right. In fact, I think this was one of her last feature films. Uh-huh. Um, they got Michael Jackson, who again would have been a huge draw at the time. Nipsey Russell was a comedian, and but who could also sing. So he was, again, another rec- recognizable feature. I think the only person people aren't familiar with is Ted Ross, and I think he was the actual only Broadway actor in the movie. Is he the guy that played the lion? He was the lion. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah so, I didn't recognize him. No, he's the only one that you don't recognize. And he is the most Broadway-like of them all. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. He, fil- he fulfilled his role in obligations. So Broadway production is a little bit more jazzier, blues, gospel, overtones to mm-hmm. it um, you know instead of down the yellow brick road mm-hmm. we're going to ease on down the road um, <laughs> yeah um, my last question um, the film as we've said is truly something to behold uh, you, you mentioned that you watched it do you have a favorite moment if there can be one do you have a favorite moment in the film I personally have a favorite moment There, there is a part where Diana Ross and Michael Jackson and the rest of the gang walk into the Emerald City and they walk into what appears to be kind of a discotheque scenario. Right. And uh, it is, it's, it's interesting just because of, of the, it's very disco and there's a lot of fans that seem to be blowing fur. And yeah. uh, it's actually quite a catchy tune playing in that part. Right. But that's one of my favorite parts. Do you have any favorite moments from if I necessarily have favorite moments, but again, I think the music is what lures me in. Mm-hmm. You know, so I can I can listen to the soundtrack and be okay with it. Yeah. So um, I'm not sure if I'm a fan of the show itself as much. Mm-hmm. So yeah. All right. Well, Donna. Well, thanks for telling us about the many takes on uh, the Wizard of Oz, which resulted in productions known as the Wiz. All right. Thank you, Merle. Thanks. <laughs> 
the subject of today's concept quiz is Oz Adaptations. How many adaptations of L. Frank Baum's Wonderful Wizard of Oz have been produced? On October 24th, 2011, the Historical Society will host the Kansas Book Festival. The festival is a celebration of the Sunflower State's literature and authors, and it was the idea of Kansas First Lady Mary Brownback. Today, we talk to the First Lady to find out more about the featured authors and learn about a First Lady to First Lady phone call that sparked the event. Good morning, Mrs. Brownback. Good morning. Uh, on September 24th, the Kansas Book Festival will take place here at the Kansas Historical Society in Topeka. This isn't the first book festival that, that's been done, but we haven't seen a book festival for a while. Can you give us a brief history of, of this book festival? Well, I believe there were uh, two book festivals down in Wichita in 06 and 07. I believe the State Library and the Historical Society were involved in those. But we have revamped it. We've uh, brought it back as a 501 so that uh, we, when we raise money, people can donate and have mm -hmm. it to be tax deductible. And I hope that this is an ongoing thing that continues year after year so that we continue to see um, authors here. People can come see the authors and buy books and that type of thing. Um, the festival has kind of become a, a personal cause for you, or I think reading in general uh, has become a personal cause for you. Um, why is it that you've decided to champion this specific event? Well, I was reading Laura Bush's biography, and she was talking about when she started the book festival in Texas, which I believe it's 15 years old, uh, might be 16 this year, and theirs occurs in October. And she's always been a strong advocate of reading because she's um, a librarian, right? Yes, yes. And I thought, we should be able to do this here in Kansas. Mm -hmm. And I thought that I would be able to uh, get the people to support me doing this, so I decided to go for it and uh, formed some committees and organize getting authors here and, like I said, organize the 501, businesses involved, and we are going to give grants to public and school libraries. Very nice. Out of the um, funds that we've taken in. And we will also be um, promoting a writing contest that we'll be announcing at the event. So I, I had read in an article that you that you read her biography, and then there was a phone call that took place. Is that right? Yes, I decided that I might as well call her up and ask her about it and how she did it. And so as I was talking to her, I said, "Well, I'd like to basically steal your idea," <laughs> and she said, "Fine, go ahead." Um, <laughs> right. And really gave me her blessing. We tried to get her to come, but she was already. Uh, book going somewhere else, so she couldn't attend. I think this is a format that any state could really do and promote um, their state's authors and, you know, any author that would come in and give their mm -hmm. citizens um, a real variety of 
books. So can you tell us a little bit about your your background? Was there, uh, were you um, Well, uh, I grew up in Kansas City, and I remember reading a lot in grade school, Mm -hmm. and then my family moved here when I was in high school, and I graduated from Topeka West. Prestigious school. Yes, a charger. (laughs) And uh, from there, I went to KU, and then graduated from KU Law School also. Mm -hmm. So it's fair to say you've dealt with books quite a bit. Yes. Right. Yes, I've read a few. (laughs) Uh, On the day of the Kansas Book Festival, can you tell us a little bit about what's going to happen? Well, we will have four different rooms where authors are appearing. And we will have, I believe it's 34 authors making presentations throughout the day. Uh, Some rooms are on the hour, some rooms are on the half hour. And they will either be reading from their book talking about their book, talking about how they wrote their book, um, any number of items pertaining to their book itself. And that will be about a half hour, 40 minutes, some question and answer. And then at that point, we take them to the signing tent where you will be able to purchase their book and then have them sign it. Mm -hmm. And we also have some entertainment. There's a tent that the Historical Society will be um, staffing for children, Mm -hmm. teach them about some Kansas things. Uh, I think overall, and we'll have um, uh, food vendors here so you don't have to leave for lunch. And overall, I think it'll be a great day's event. Excellent. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about the authors that are going to be featured at the the festival because it's really quite fascinating. the authors include, uh, there's at least one teenage writer who mm-hmm. is a published teenager writer. Uh, there's a school teacher from Western Kansas, from Western Kansas Farm. There's a couple Newbery Book Award winners, which is a very prestigious book award. Um, and there's even the grandson of Dwight D. Eisenhower. Yes, David Eisenhower will be coming in to talk about uh, his book, his latest book that he wrote on his grandfather. And um, there is the young writer from Lawrence who was published, I believe, by KU Inc. Mm-hmm. And will be attending, talking about how she got started in writing and that kind of thing. And then Claire Vanderpool, who is Kansas's first Newbery Award winner, mm-hmm. will be attending. And then um, Alexandra Robbins, who is a New York Times bestseller, she will be here. And her book just got picked up to be made into a 30-minute comedy by ABC. <laughs> and this series. is the book about geeks, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, the Geek Shall Inherit the Earth. Yeah. Sounds good to me. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Um, so which, uh, which author, author are you most excited to see? I'll tell you. I'll start with myself. I'm pretty ex- excited to um, see Jack Mayer, who wrote a book uh, entitled Life in a Jar, the Irina, Irina Sendler Project, which is a fascinating project about a woman who helped rescue 2,500 Jews in Europe during World War I. And her story was kind of later discovered by four kids from Uniontown, Kansas, who wrote... Doing a History Day right, project. doing a History Day project, and they wrote a play about this lady. Yes. Um, I'm interested in the teenage author. Really? Uh, just on how she got started and... You know, to really encourage young artists. Mm -hmm. And then I'm interested in Claire Vanderpool because uh, she 
it's it's written to I think fourth through sixth grade type level, and that's that's a hard age to get books that they like to read, and so I'm kind of interested on how she does this and entices them into a book. And then Alexandra Robbins, I've got a I haven't read the book yet, and I would like to read that and see. Uh, I think it's more on um, peer pressure and how we mm-hmm. all need to get uh, be nice to each other and get along. And, mm-hmm. and I think that'll be interesting. Um, does the festival cost anything? Like, if you're someone coming out to the festival, should you bring anything to get in? Well, the festival is free. You just get here show and up. show up, and you can listen to whichever author you want to listen to. Now, we will be having a book, a tent, where all the books are on sale. So if you want to buy the book and have the author sign it, you'd need money for that. Mm-hmm. Now, you can bring uh, up to two books that are previously purchased into the festival and have them signed. Now, if you want to contribute, we're, we're all about taking contributions. Yeah. So if you want to go on our website at kansasbookfestival.com, and you're able to contribute that way. Excellent. Um, all right, Mrs. Brownback. Here is my last question. When uh, when you and your husband arrived in Topeka as the governor and the first lady, you have to, or, or you get to, live in the governor's mansion, which is known as Cedar Crest. Yes. Cedar Crest used to be owned by a lumber tycoon, I think, and he... Uh, he established a, a library in the house, and when he donated it to the state of Kansas, there was a requirement that the library had to stay in the house. So you have a built-in library in your house, whether you wanted it or not. <laughs> Among those books, uh, what, what kind of, are there any good books in that collection? Well, I haven't looked at many of them. They are all very old. Yeah. Uh, in fact, there are, we have several boxes of books in the basement that are so old they're not in good shape, but they have to stay in the house, so they're put in a box and kept in the house. Uh-huh. Um, but it's uh, not terribly exciting books. <laughs> a bit of a dry read is what I've heard. You, you could probably read some to put you to sleep at <laughs> yeah. night. All right, Mrs. Brownback, well, thanks for providing us with some information on the Kansas Book Festival. Well, thank you very much, and we hope to see you there this weekend. Trouble melts like lemon drops High above the chimney top That's where you find My name is Donna Ray, And the answer to today's consequence is 19 The Wonderful Wizard of Oz Has been adapted into at least 19 different films One of which was in Turkish As many of six new ones are in the works For future release The dream that you did to And now, it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. And Education Specialist Abby Perrin. Hi. Today, we connect William Allen White, a small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Benedict Arnold, an American Revolutionary War general that lacked an ability to pick a winner. Mm-hmm. Uh, Abby, you want to give us a little background on Mr. Mr. Arnold? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Well, born in Connecticut in 1741, Benedict Arnold V. There were <laughs> there five was of four, them. There four, four prior four, to him. Yeah. 
He was the descendant of a prestigious colonial family, which is probably why they decided to keep naming them Benedict. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, they were once members of New England's elite, but by Arnold's time, the family was nearly penniless. Mm. Mm. And instead of attending Yale, young Arnold enlisted to fight the French. That's a noble, noble cause. Yeah. <laughs> But after 13 years of loyal service, loyal service, he left military and established a successful trade business that took him around the world. Business slumped, though, when the British began taxing colonial trade. When faced with taxation, Arnold did what many Americans did. He revolted. <laughs> <laughs> after defeating the British at the battles for Ticonderoga and Saratoga, Arnold's star was on the rise. In 1778, he joined Washington's army at Valley Forge, where he took the oath of allegiance to the newly formed United States. A lot of good that did. Yeah, we can see how far he took that. After his marriage to a British loyalist, Arnold began engaging in nefarious communications with the British. Invisible ink and coded messages were used to hatch a British plot to capture West Point. There's much more like, um, I guess subterfuge than I ever thought was really going on during the Revolutionary War. I do like, though, how his tactics, invisible ink and coded messages, are basically what we learned in first grade. Exactly. (laughs) Could explain why he got caught. (laughs) That's what I was thinking. I had the same thought that, you know, he inspired or he sparked generations of kids using invisible ink to trick their parents. Yeah, Yeah. or writing letters in milk or something, wasn't it? Then you held it over a flame. Oh, it kind of scorches them. Yeah. Right. (laughs) His uh, his plot was exposed, as we all know, <laughs> and he fled to the British, who soon promoted him. After the war, Arnold spent the remainder of his days in London because, well, he was never going to be welcomed back. Right, yeah. <laughs> Though he was never brought to justice, Arnold has been vilified throughout history, and today his name is synonymous with treason. Yes. As a contestant, Abby, you're going to hear two chains of connection between William Allen White and Benedict Arnold. Uh, You must pick the true six degrees of William Allen White from the false. And, Nikayla, you can go first. Okay. Well, Benedict Arnold was a descendant, through his maternal grandmother, of a man named John Lathrop, who was an English-Anglican clergyman who immigrated to New England. Well, Lathrop married twice and had 13 children, which that's not so unusual. Mm. But for that time period. Laborious. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Strangely enough, though, from those 13 children, he managed to become the descendant of more than 80,000 Americans. So 80,000 people in the United States can trace their lineage through this guy. Um, And that includes many famous Americans. Among these is Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. and Jr. Uh Uh-huh. Well, that would make sense. Yeah. Well, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. was an associate justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, and Holmes met William Allen White at a dinner hosted by Teddy Roosevelt and included other notables like Elihu Root and General Leonard Wood. Wow. Mm. That's good. So there's a little bit of genealogy. Genealogy. Yeah. 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 That's all right. All right, now my turn. Arnold's greatest achievement was his crushing victory over the British at the Battle of Saratoga. In 1887, John Watts de Paster, the adjutant general of New York and a Civil War scholar, erected a monument to Arnold on the battle site of Saratoga. The monument actually praised Arnold, which was really odd for 1880s, um, but it did so in a very sneaky way. It never actually references General Benedict Arnold on the monument. After serving in the Civil War, 
Paster finished law school at the prestigious Nebraska College <laughs> in Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, while there, he became well acquainted with a young Missourian named John Pershing. After leading American forces to victory during World War I, Pershing returned to the Midwest. And in 1921, he joined William Allen White for the dedication of another monument, the Liberty Memorial in Kansas City, which is a monument to World War I. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, these are both really, really convincing uh, arguments here. <laughs> you know, I'm really having a tough time. But... In the end, Merle, I'm not quite sure that your dates are convincing enough. It what? seems to Paster seems to have spanned a, multiple generations in his one lifetime. <laughs> he maintained a very healthy lifestyle. <laughs> I mean, after serving in the Civil War, then he erected a monument to Arnold, and then. He went to college in Nebraska, <laughs> and then he was there in 1921 in Kansas City, Missouri. So, I mean, this guy must have been incredible. He was, uh, he was had, he, yeah, mine's the yeah. fake. <laughs> but it sounded pretty good. Did it? Yeah, I liked it. It was nice, yeah. All right, Nikayla, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode? Sure. For our next episode, we connect, we attempt to connect William Allen White to Harley Davidson. Established in 1901, this American motorcycle company not only built a good bike, but created an entire subculture. So come back in two weeks when we connect William L. White to Harley Davidson. Did White once try to reject societal authority by strapping on leather chaps and hitting the open road with his Harley? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William L. White. That concludes episode 142, Disco Dorothy. If you would like to see images of album covers from The Wiz, just go to kansasmemory.org, our online digital repository. If you would like to learn more about interesting Kansas artifacts or receive updates about our history, find us on Facebook. Come back in two weeks when curator Blair Tarr examines giant plywood menus and stools used at a local burger joint in the 1960s. Find out just how long grease and burger smell can linger. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Can I?